0: Our text today is going to be Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 48. Palm Sunday celebrates the day Jesus entered Jerusalem with triumph, but also tears amidst waving palm branches with people placing their clothes on the ground so that not even the hoofs of the donkey, the donkey's colt that he rode, so even so those hoofs would not touch the earth. Jesus was heralded as king, but he was not the king many imagined. Palm Sunday is a glorious time to remember and celebrate what took place that day, but even more glorious than that is that we, his church, are the true Jerusalem, the true temple, and the true bride he came to save. He entered Jerusalem knowing he would meet death on Calvary's cross, knowing his death would be life for all who trust in his name. And I pray you are trusting in his name. Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 28. When he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem, and it came to pass when he drew near Bethphage, And Bethany, at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where, as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, Because the Lord has need of it. So those who were... For though I'm sorry, but those so those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, "Why are you loosing the colt?" And they said, "The Lord has need of him." Then they brought him to Jesus and they threw their own clothes on the colt and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, "'Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest.' And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, "'Teacher, rebuke your disciples,' But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you. When your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. This is the word of the Lord. Father, open your word to us today. Open our hearts, open our eyes, the eyes of our understanding, that we would receive your word, that we would, by your Holy Spirit, Lord, see this word illuminated in us, to mold us and to shape us, to renew our minds, that we would walk in the light that you have given us in your grace, that we would walk as children of light lights in this dark world, that men may know the same hope that you have given to us and that we have come to know in Jesus Christ. Father, we ask this, that you would be glorified in your church. In Jesus' name, amen. The triumphal entry, that's what uh, this is called, when Jesus makes his entrance into Jerusalem, riding upon a donkey's colt. The triumphal entries are recorded in all four of the Gospels. Today we're going to look primarily at Luke's account. Luke doesn't mention palm leaves. He mentions putting clothes on the donkey and putting clothes on the ground. But the other Gospels tell us that palm branches were cut and the people waved that because in Israel's history, the palm branch was a symbol. It was a symbol of kings. It was a symbol of victory. Uh, It was minted on their coins. It's still a symbol today. And so there was significance behind the palm branches that people were waving, proclaiming the king has come. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's significance to the palm branches you were given today because we are still acknowledging, we are still proclaiming the king. And just as they said then, we can say now the king is coming. Because he is. This text in Luke 19 28 begins with these words. When he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When we pick up the account beginning in Luke 19 28, we see that Jesus was already on his way to Jerusalem. He was on his way, and as he went, he was teaching and preaching. The reference in verse 28 that begins with when he had said this is a reference to the words that Jesus spoke and the parable that Jesus had given, it's recorded for us in the verses preceding this, as Jesus passed through Jericho. And he gave to the Jews, that's where he encountered Zacchaeus. Remember, you all know the the little song about Zacchaeus. Well, when he's passing through Jericho, he gives the parable of the ten minas And that is not insignificant because that parable, if you're familiar with it, and we don't have time to talk about it today, but it is a parable of the kingdom and it absolutely was significant for what Jesus was getting ready to do as he goes into Jerusalem triumphantly as the king. And he is going in, and we we read this last week, we saw this in John chapter 12 where Jesus says, now is the time. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world shall be cast out. And that parable is a parable about the Lord who has gone but has now come back to judge his servants to see what they have done with what he has entrusted to them. And so after giving the Jews that parable, he went ahead going up to Jerusalem, the scripture says, And as he drew near Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Bethphage is the house of unripe figs. That's what that word means. And Bethany is the house of dates. Palm branches come from date trees. Dates are the fruit that come off of palm trees. Uh, And this area of the Mount of Olives had very many palm trees growing. Bethany was the house of dates. And there is significant in both of these names here. And Jesus draws near to these villages and he sends two of his disciples to the village ahead to find and bring a colt that would be, that he would ride into town, ride into Jerusalem upon. And these servants were sent and they obeyed the command of Jesus and went to fetch a colt. Obedience in small things matters in great things. Yeah, there is so much we could talk about in this text and in these verses. And we might read over this small detail that Jesus sent his disciples to go fetch a colt for him. It's not a small detail. We know it's not a small detail. But how many times does God command us to do things? You don't have to sit and wait for God to speak to you. You just need to open his word and read his word, and his word is filled with commandments for us. So if you're waiting to get a word from the Lord, don't wait. Just open his Bible and read the Scripture and see the commands that God gives you throughout his Scripture and be faithful in the little things because obedience in small things matters in great things. Going to fetch a donkey's colt may not sound like a great thing, but there are no minor points of obedience when it comes to obeying Jesus. Jesus. The disciples of Jesus became known as those who have turned the world upside down. But wouldn't the church today love to have that label? Those who have turned the world upside down. Wouldn't we love to be, be called that here in Taylor? Those who have turned Taylor upside down, who have seen the rights made wrong and have, have taken all the things that were, were good and called evil and we've put them in their proper place. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, we'll never see that until we become faithful in the little things, in the small things. Before they turned the world upside down, they learned to obey Jesus in those seemingly small things. Jesus riding into Jerusalem upon a colt, obediently brought to him by his disciples, was no small thing. When they brought the colt to Jesus, they threw their own clothes on the colt and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. This was a clear sign of royalty. They were making a procession for the king as he came into Jerusalem. It's the same thing we see in Thessalonians when it talks about us being caught up together to meet him in the air. We're not going that way. He's coming this way, and we are going to come out to meet him the same way these residents of Jerusalem, his disciples, came out to meet their king as he made his way back to Jerusalem. That's what you do when the king is coming to your city. You go out to meet him. And when the king returns to this earth, I promise you his church is going to be caught up to meet him so that they can come back to this earth and rule and reign with him For all eternity. As Jesus rode into Jerusalem. They didn't just see a great teacher. A great prophet. They saw their Messiah King. He comes having salvation. Lowly and riding on a donkey. Listen to the words of the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah 9. 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly O daughter of Zion. Shout O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold Your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus riding into Jerusalem was not just a king, but a conquering king. Not just a man of war, but the prince of peace. Not just a king to rule Israel, but a king whose dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is Jesus, our king. With or without eyes to see him, he is king of kings. You do realize that, right? Whether you have eyes to see him or not, Whether the world has eyes to see him or not, or heart to believe in him or not, he is the king of kings who has conquered, and his dominion has no bounds, and his kingdom no end. This is our king. We have all reason to rejoice, yes, even in the midst of our fiery trials, just as Loretta testified this morning. It doesn't matter what our fiery trial is. We have reason to rejoice because Jesus, our King, has conquered. The world doesn't want you to believe that. The enemy doesn't want you to believe that. But it is the truth. And whether you feel like you have conquered or not, stop looking at yourself and know that Jesus has conquered. And if you belong to Jesus, then you too are victorious. And let that victory motivate you to obedience to the Lord. Our king has come and has conquered. He has given his authority and his name to his church to do the very same. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord was the cry of the people. As Jesus drew near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the descent, he's getting ready to make his descent and go into Jerusalem As he approaches the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice saying, with a loud voice, for all the mighty works that he had done, that they had seen. Now think about this. This is a week before the death of Jesus, before his crucifixion. And so the culmination of all that Jesus has done and all that Jesus has said, these disciples have seen the miracles, the works of Jesus, and they are declaring these things that they have seen because those mighty works, those signs testify that Jesus is the Messiah. That's why he did them. Now this Messiah was drawing near the descent into Jerusalem, and the passion of the people Was it a fever pitch? And they began saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This was a clear declaration of the Messiah, the king of Israel. They could not help themselves. I want you to hear this, church. They could not help themselves. Jesus truly is the king, and the proclamation of such in that moment was spontaneously demanded. In his triumph, Jesus would do all that they had hoped and so much more, even more than they could ever imagine, but not in the way or in the time they had fixed in their own imaginations. God had a plan that not even the rulers of this world could imagine. The scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians 2.8 that had the rulers of this world known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. <clears throat> they did not know because they could not know. This was the mystery God had hidden from before the ages. Jesus was riding into Jerusalem to fulfill that mysterious eternal plan of God that would culminate in the death of His only begotten Son. That was unimaginable for the Messiah and the King they were looking for. That death would save the world, even the cosmos, but it would dash the hopes of many who had, plotted in, who had plotted vain things in their own hopes that were fixed on a plan and a Messiah of their own design, both good and bad. There were men plotting vain things, both for good and for evil. And that was the problem. They plotted their own vain things based on their own vain imaginations and not based on what God had revealed to them in His Word. We must not make the same sinful mistakes today. We must make sure the Messiah and King we look to is the one revealed to us in the Scripture. We must guard against a Messiah who is a figment of our own vain imaginations that we trust will meet our expectations that are far too small. You do realize the expectations of the people that were welcoming him into Jerusalem, their expectations were far too small for what God had actually sent Jesus to do. And we find ourselves in the very same place in our current culture, in the current culture of our church today. I believe that truly. Jesus is greater than we can ever imagine, and his victory reaches farther than we can know This is why we are to trust him. Jesus Christ, the king, is savior and judge of the world. He will either save you from your sin or he will judge you in your sin. God hates sin so much that he gave his only begotten son to die, to conquer it, and to save his people held captive by it. Unknown to those proclaiming him king, His mission as he triumphantly entered Jerusalem was to die, to save his people from their sin, and so to conquer the world. That's why we're here. We're here to conquer the world. We're not waiting to go somewhere. God is waiting for us to obey his command and to take his word seriously and begin to conquer the world, to make disciples of all the nations. So that the knowledge of the glory of God will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. So we have to ask ourselves, do we fear man or do we fear God? Luke 19.39, Jesus, it, it records for us, And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. The Pharisees wanted Jesus to rebuke his disciples. Because by the actions of the people, not just their words, not just their chants of blessed be the king, but by the actions of the people welcoming him into Jerusalem, the Jewish leaders were nervous about this display of allegiance to a king other than Caesar. It would be one thing if Jesus really were the Messiah who would actually conquer their enemies and restore the kingdom to Israel, but this lowly rabbi riding on a colt of a donkey did not conform to the Messiah they had imagined and had created in their own minds. And so looking at this Jesus, this would-be Messiah who didn't fit the bill, trouble with Rome from this would-be Messiah would be disruptive to what they had already built and developed. The arrangement, the profitable arrangements they had with the powers that be. Jesus had performed many signs and made many claims, and he would do more before his death and after his death. Those messianic signs and claims, as well as claims of equality with God, had provoked the Jewish elders to seek to destroy Jesus. The call for Jesus to rebuke his disciples, to be quiet, just like we hear those calls today from those around us. Be quiet. Stop saying that. Stop believing that. Stop promoting that. The call for Jesus to rebuke his disciples for declaring him king was a call to deny the truth and deny God his glory. It was their fear of man and their fear of losing what was the illusion of control. It is the same fear we see in man today, particularly in Christians who should know the truth and speak the truth without fear. We can say all day long that we love and we simply want to be nice people. That's what the world says they want us to be. Just be nice. Quit saying hateful things. Quit saying that my lifestyle is sinful. That's that's not nice. That's hateful. Jesus wouldn't do that. Hmm. We lie to ourselves, telling ourselves that it is goodness that brings men to repentance. Simply speaking nice words and doing nice things is empty and void of real power. Pay attention to what the Scripture actually says. It is the goodness of God that brings men to repentance, not the goodness of man. The goodness of God is meant to be seen and heard and known. Where? In the gospel of Jesus Christ. His gospel is His goodness revealed to man through His body, the church. It is the gospel that is the power of God to salvation, not the goodness of man. Without the truth of the gospel, without the truth about sin and the truth about salvation, there is no power to save. We should... We should be good and nice people, but our goodness and our niceness does not save, and we should never believe that illusion. If you think you being good enough and nice enough is going to save somebody, then go back to your Scripture, go back to the Bible, and read actually what the Scripture teaches us. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Yes, we are to love even our enemies, and that love must look and sound a certain way. But listen, church, it must certainly never sound like a watered-down version of the gospel that is so void of the truth that it contains no power. We are commanded to take his gospel, the uncompromised gospel, to the world. The message God commands us to take to the world is a dangerous message. It was dangerous for Jesus. It was so filled with truth, spoken with such unconditional love that they murdered Jesus because of it. We must ask ourselves today, is the message of the gospel we speak and live so full of love, so full of truth that it makes the world want to destroy us just as they sought to destroy Jesus? We are not to fear the rebuke of the world. We are to be as wise as serpents and as gentle as doves in our dealings with the world, but never compromising the truth. We must not fear man. We are to fear God and trust Him for the salvation of those who hear His gospel in the fullness of truth and the fullness of love. Therefore, we must know the impossibility of remaining silent. Listen to the response of Jesus recorded in Luke 19, verse 40. When they said, Jesus... Rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. In Luke 19.40, Jesus is conveying the impossibility of remaining silent about who he is and what he has come to do. I believe Jesus makes a not-so-veiled reference to the words of the prophet Habakkuk who prophesied the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the temple at the hands of the Babylonians due to Judah's unrepentant sin and refusal to obey God. Think of Jeremiah. For almost 25 years, he preaches the truth, and they will not hear him. They will not accept him. They will not listen to the word of the Lord. Habakkuk 2, verses 9 through 12. Woe to him who converts evil gain for his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of disaster. You give shameful counsel to your house, cutting off many peoples and sin against your soul. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the timbers will answer it. And here's the answer. Woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed, who establishes a city... By iniquity. Habakkuk says, for the stone will cry out from the wall. Jesus said, I tell you that if these should remain silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Those Jews who thought they had a plan to be delivered from the power of disaster knew exactly the reference to the words of Habakkuk. Just as the prophet warned, woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed who establishes a city by iniquity. So Jesus is warning the Jews of the coming judgment. But more than that, he is warning them that their king has come. He tells them, in essence, that if they will not shout it out, the stones will, for it is impossible to remain silent in the face of this coming king. And so it should be for us as well. It should be impossible for us to remain silent in the face of our coming king. And he surely is coming. Then in verse 1941, we see Jesus weeping. Jesus wept again. Verse 41 says, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. It's worth noting that this is one of two times in the Gospels that Jesus weeps. The other is the shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. He wept when at the death of Lazarus. He is weeping now as he is cresting the hill, getting ready to descend into Jerusalem, and he's looking over the city, and the Bible says he weeps. He drew near the city of Jerusalem and wept over it. Jesus was a man of sorrows. And this surely was one of the sorrows that made him weep, knowing the fate that awaited Jerusalem and all that would be in her when the Romans would come and lay siege to the city and oversee its destruction, the destruction of the temple and the destruction of hundreds of thousands of souls within her. But more than their physical destruction, more than a physical destruction was the spiritual (coughs) destitute. And the spiritual darkness and the spiritual separation that existed between God and so many of those people in that city that was his city. It's easy. It's easy for us as Christians to see the things happening around us. Jesus says in verse 42, he says, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. It's easy for us as Christians to see all of the cultural decline with the destruction of our foundations and feel a sense of angst or uncertainty or even a sense of hopelessness about the future. If if we are walking by sight and not by faith. God's faithfulness has been proven in countless ways, but in none greater than giving his son for the salvation of the world, the birth, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ to glory with the promise that he will come again Makes sure his faithfulness to his people no matter what we see or no matter what we do not see with our eyes in our short lifetimes. God is working to a thousand generations. I came to faith in Christ in 1984 and I kept being told, This is the generation, this is the generation, this is the generation. No, God works. To a thousand generations. When Jesus comes back to set foot on this earth, it's not to take his church somewhere, it's to rule and to reign. And we have been placed on this church, right on this earth right now, to see his kingdom come, to see his will be done. God is working to a thousand generations. We can't even begin to imagine what he has planned, what he has prepared that we will not see, that we cannot know and experience in our own lifetimes. There are secret things that belong to God, but there are many things that he has revealed to us and to our children from generation to generation. The things that he has revealed are the things that make for our peace. We must have eyes to see them, ears to hear, hearts to believe, and grace to walk in them. He supplies all of that. That is his grace. He supplies that to us. (laughs) Seek to be a child of God who walks by faith and not by sight. Don't be moved by what the eye sees. Be moved by what the heart knows and then walk by faith. So many people in Jesus' day and in our own are moved by what they see instead of moving in faith. One day, men see a king and they rejoice and praise God. One day... They see a man condemned and they shout, crucify him. That is what happens when we are moved by what we see and we do not walk by faith. Faith sees the king, whether he is riding into the city or whether he is crucified outside the city. Our faith must be in God and his faithfulness revealed to us in Jesus Christ. We must not be moved by what we see or do not see, in this world we dwell in, we are to be moved by His Spirit who dwells in us. Lest we forget, God is not just a Savior. He is a judge. And His judgment is real. And if we truly love men, then we will love them enough to tell them the truth in hopes that they can avert the judgment that they will face one day apart from Jesus Christ. In Luke 19, 43 and 44, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem because it did not know the things that make for its peace, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Those things were hidden from their eyes because of their unrepentant sin that would result in the crucifixion of Christ and the city's destruction in judgment. In these two verses, Jesus describes what will happen to Jerusalem and those within, and it will be leveled along with those who are within, even your children. Jerusalem, Paul writes in Galatians, is the mother of us all. We are not children of that earthly Jerusalem. That Jerusalem really doesn't even exist anymore. We think it does. It's, it was leveled to the ground, and a Roman emperor built a whole new city on top of it. The city, the Jerusalem we belong to, is the Jerusalem above. That is the mother of us all. And this is why Jesus wept upon seeing the city as he descended upon it. Because he knew that those who lived in that city, very many of them did not trust in him. They trusted in something other than him. They trusted in themselves. They trusted in their own righteousness. They trusted in their own ability to save themselves, but Jesus knew that it was all in vain because he was the only one who can save. God will judge his people still today. Peter writes that judgment begins in the house of God. It was true then, it's true now. If we will not repent and speak the truth and love to the people inside and outside the church, his judgment must eventually come. That is why we pray for a reformation. I don't want His judgment to come. I want a revival to come. I want reformation to come. But it's not going to come until His church gets serious and actually seeks His face and turns from her wicked ways and stops depending upon the arm of the flesh and the ways of the world to try to do something only God can do. What must we do If Jesus wept in the midst of his triumph, how much more should we? If the church will not repent and weep over the sin and compromise that has come to consume her, then she will one day weep over the judgment that awaits her. God loves his children enough to to discipline them and not leave them alone in their sin. You know that is a grace. If God didn't love you, he'd just leave you alone. We very often ask, why are we going through these hard times? Why are we going through these things? Doesn't God love us? Yeah, he does. And the fact that God does not leave us alone is proof positive that he actually does love you. Because if he didn't love you, he'd leave you oblivious to him in your sin. But his grace does not do that for his children. God loves his children enough to discipline them and not leave them alone in their sin. And that is grace and that is good news. Jesus did and he will clean his house. In Luke 19 45 and 46, we see Jesus go into the temple upon arriving in Jerusalem. And he goes in, he drives out those who had defiled it. He went into the house to cleanse it. The house of God is called a house of prayer. He drove out those who corrupted it by making it a den of thieves. It wasn't that those people were not supposed to be in there buying and selling and doing what they were doing. They were supposed to be there to the advantage of the worshipers who were coming to worship God, but they had turned what was meant to be an advantage to them into their own personal gain, and they had become corrupted. And Jesus knew exactly what had happened here, and he comes into his house to cleanse it and to purify it. And that's what he did when he drove out those, those thieves, those corrupt men from his temple. Jesus called out the corruption and did the things he did because it was his house. He has the authority as Lord and master of his own house. He has the authority to cleanse it and to purify it. And that is what he did when he went into the temple in Jerusalem. And that is what he will do and what he is doing now to prepare his bride, the church, who is called his new Jerusalem. Ephesians 5, 26 and 27. Paul writes that he might sanctify, speaking of Jesus and his bride, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. As he did the temple and the old Jerusalem, Jesus will purify and cleanse his church. He will do so with the water of the word and with the fire of his spirit. His purifying judgment will either refine us or it will consume us. If we belong to Jesus in his grace, he will cleanse us, he will purify us, he will refine us. So, Jesus goes and he cleanses his temple. But in the very next image that's pictured for us in Luke 19 47 and 48, it tells us that Jesus was teaching daily in the temple. But the chief priests and the scribes and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him. Here is Jesus setting a table for his sheep, even in the presence of his enemies. But they were unable to do anything, for the people were attentive to hear him. So just as Jesus judged his house as Lord and Master of it, Jesus was also shepherd of his sheep. John 10, tells us that Jesus is the good shepherd. And this is what he was doing daily in the temple. He was feeding and nourishing and shepherding his sheep. He was also culling his flock. For he knew that only those who were his sheep would hear and obey his voice. Upon entering Jerusalem, Jesus went to the temple and dealt with the thieves and the robbers in his house. And then he began to tend his flock. Listen to the words of the Apostle John recorded for us in John 10, verses 4, 7, and 8. John 10, 4, and when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Verse 7, when Jesus said to them again, most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. In verse 8, all who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. In John ten fourteen, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And I know my sheep and am known by my own. Jesus knows his sheep, and his sheep know him. In Christ, God not only knows you, he chose you in him before the foundation of the world, according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. If he is your good shepherd, it is because in his grace he chose you and called you, He gave you eyes to see and ears to hear with a new heart to respond. You follow him because in his grace you will follow no other. That's not my words. Those are the words of Jesus. You belong to Jesus who is the good shepherd and you are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, this is who you are, and he is our king, and we should rejoice, and we should be glad, and we should have hope beyond hope, beyond hope, beyond hope, because you are his sheep, and he is not just your shepherd, but he is your king and Lord of all. Amen? Let us prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table. This is the climax of our worship on the Lord's day. You literally are invited to come and dine at the Lord's table. This is not an empty symbol. This is not some powerless exercise. God has really invited you To sup with Him, to sit with Him, to eat bread and drink wine with Him and be renewed in the covenant He made in His blood by His grace. You are welcome to this table if you count yourself a covenant member of God's family. You don't have to go to church or have membership here at Christ Fellowship. But if you belong to Jesus, if you count yourself as having belonged to Jesus, if you've been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, big or small, young or old, you are welcome to this table. Christian, welcome to Jesus. I will give you your charge. We'll have the doxology and benediction, and then I'm going to say a blessing for the food next door. You are all invited. Here is your charge, just as they did in Jesus' day. Sinful men today plot vain things against Jesus and against His church. They plotted how they might destroy Him, but He has proven Himself indestructible. We live in a culture that believes it can simply cancel, redefine, or just ignore Jesus. He will not be mocked, for He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. He eternally is the King of glory and the Lord of all. No wonder God sits in the heavens and laughs. It matters not what the culture believes or preaches or how hard they try to ignore Him. The apostles of evil who preach an unholy gospel and all who follow it are subservient to the Lord of glory. Whether they believe it or not, he is their Lord. His rule and reign and his victory is not dependent upon any man's approval. The plotting of evil man was in vain then. It is in vain now, and we are to believe that. For Jesus is Lord, and he has conquered sin and death, and he does now reign victorious over all of his enemies, even over those still awaiting their final destruction at his coming Even the last enemy, death. This is why we celebrate our resurrected King, not once a year, not even once a week, but we are to live each day with thankful hearts, filled with rejoicing for the victory that we have in our Savior King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Rejoice, for he is victorious and he reigns as the Lord of all. The King has come, and He will one day return. Until then, we work and pray to see His kingdom come, His will be done on earth, in our communities, as it is in heaven, in our families, in our lives, in all things on earth, as it is in heaven. Amen? Amen. Let's sing our thanks. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures, hear! hear. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. The Lord be with you.